Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Hey, good morning. Thanks for being here today, and I want to welcome those of you who are watching online. Uh, I'm really excited about this series, uh, specifically this message. Uh, This is going to be a message you won't remember. Um, All right, we're going we're gonna to devote ourselves to uh, a subject in the next three weeks that really is at my heart, and it's really Jesus' heart for the church and for this church. Um, we're going to talk about a three-step strategy for advancing the kingdom of God, and I want to tell you right at the outset why this series means so much to me personally. Uh, before we started Blue Oaks Church, I read Andy Stanley's book, Deep and Wide, Uh, creating great churches unchurched people love to attend. This was over seven years ago now. And I remember being so inspired by this group of people that seriously devoted themselves to reaching people who were outside the church, uh, unchurched people who were far from God, that I told God, I'll give my life to that. And that's what I'm devoted to these days. I'm giving my life to that. Uh, Well, over these next three weeks, we're going to devote ourselves to learning this strategy for reaching unchurched people. And more than that, we're going to do it. Um, And I just want you to know at the outset why this matters that we do this. Uh, It matters because if we don't, this church or any church that doesn't do this will become real focused on its own comfort and its own convenience, and it'll start to die. Uh, It matters to every human being who is far from God, whose lives, uh, thousands and thousands of them, have yet to be redeemed Uh, from a crisis eternity. Um, It matters to our Heavenly Father who gave the very best that he had, the life of his son, to rescue human beings that for some reason only known to him, he loved so much. It matters more than you and I can imagine that we devote ourselves to what we talk about in the next three weeks. And I just want to ask you without apology to commit yourself to being here and to putting into practice what lies right at the heart of Jesus. Uh, his desire for his church. Now today we're going to look at the first step in this strategy, and that is develop significant relationships with unchurched people. Uh, And I want to start by asking you a few questions about how influence works in human lives. How does influence work in human lives? Uh, For instance, imagine a total stranger calls you out of the blue and says, you need to refinance your house, and I'm the guy to do it with. How many of you are going to continue that conversation? Or suppose someone you've never met walks up to you and says, I know the person who you should spend the rest of your life with, my cousin. And I've set up a blind date for the two of you this Friday, uh, the day he gets out on parole. Um, (laughs) You can trust me, he's the one for you. Like, who's going to go on that date? When it comes to what matters to us, our finances, our relational lives, our futures, We don't usually put ourselves in the hands of total strangers. Uh, We listen to people we trust. Uh, Those are the people who have influence. And if this is true in general, and I think it is, it's most especially true when it comes to the ultimate issue in life, 
a, people, a, a people's spiritual destiny. Uh, if people are going to come to know Jesus as their God and Savior, for the most part, they will not be reached through strangers. Uh, they will not be reached through television preachers. They will not be reached through the radio. They will be reached primarily through friends. Now, there's a real important pattern in the New Testament that I just want us all to be clear on. Uh, look at Acts 16. I just want you to notice one word in particular. Uh, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. And then a little later on in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, Paul and Silas are in prison, and they had an opportunity to leave because God uh, delivered them, but they stayed, and the jailer is astounded that they would stay out of consideration for him. And he asked them, what must I do to be saved? And in verse 31, they, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now look at verse 33. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his household were baptized. And then in Acts 18, then Paul left the synagogue and uh, went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, uh, and uh, his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. And the word that just keeps coming up here is household. Uh, the, the gospel keeps spreading through these households. Now, the household in the New Testament was not quite the same as it is in our day. Uh, we tend to just think of our parents and our children. Uh, in the first century, the word household was the word oikos. It was uh, a much broader meaning. It would include the parents. It would include children. But it would also include extended family members. It would include servants, it would include slaves, it would include people connected to each other by family ties, by economic ties, by vocational ties, uh, what we would call in our day a network, uh, circles of people with whom you work and play and live and relate and do business. That's how the gospel spread. The kingdom of God is never spread primarily by uh, preachers speaking to crowds of unconnected strangers. It's never primarily spread that way. It's never primarily spread through mass media. Who do you think mainly listens to Christian radio and reads Christian books and watches Christian TV? It's Christians, right? I mean, the, the kingdom spreads now the same way it spread over 2,000 years ago when one Christ follower gets so convinced that the life Jesus offers really is the pearl of great price that the whole oikos, the whole network, the whole web of relationships gets touched one life at a time. That's how it's been happening for over 2,000 years from the book of Acts to our day today. But here's the problem. The problem in our day is far too many churches are filled with Christians who spend virtually all their time with other Christians. They're not significantly, significantly connected with people who are far from God. And in too many cases, they try to design their lives that way. They try to arrange things so that their work and their neighborhoods and their recreation, whatever, they're just surrounded by other Christians. And that is not a good thing. And it's not a victory for the kingdom of God. Some Christians will say, well, it's just too hard. Like, I don't have the time to develop significant relationships with unchurched people. And to be honest, I don't know that I want to. I don't really like being around unchurched people. 
And I just want to say to those people, when in the Bible did God ever give someone an easy job? Like, when did God ever interrupt someone and say to them, like, I have an assignment for you, but it's not going to be very difficult, and it's not really going to take much of your time? And of course, the answer is he never does. God comes to Noah and says, I have a mission for you. I want to begin this whole project of the human race all over again, and I'm going to do it with you. And so I want you to go to Home Depot, I want you to get some materials, and I want you to build an ark. And you're going to face ridicule and hostility, and I want you to collect all these kinds of animals, and I want you to be willing to start with your little family, start civilization all over from scratch, but I want you to know that you're not alone. I will promise to be with you. And I'll give you a sign to remind you of my promise and my presence, and that sign was a rainbow. Noah said, all right, God, I don't really understand it all, but... I'm in. God, use me. God came to Abraham one day and said, I have a mission for you. I'm going to create a new people, the people of Israel. And I want you to leave everything. I want you to leave your home, your culture, your wealth, everything. And I want you to go to a land that you do not know. And I want you to make your home among strangers. And I'll tell you when you get there. But I'm sending you out. And I promise you're not going alone. I will be with you. And I'll give you a sign to remind you of my promise to you. And that sign was circumcision. And Abraham said, how come Noah got a rainbow? (laughs) No, Abraham said, all right, God, I don't understand it, but I'm all in. God, use me. God came to Moses and he said, I want you to free my people. I want you to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, defy him in his face and demand that he let my people go. And Moses said, here I am, God. I'm slow of speech. Send Aaron. (laughs) Now Moses said, all right, God, use me. Nehemiah rebuilds a city. David takes on Goliath. Esther risks her life to change the mind of the king. Joseph goes to prison. Daniel gets thrown into a lion's den. You know, Max Dupree said, never insult someone by giving them an easy job. And God never does. He gives the ultimate assignment to Jesus to reconcile the world to himself to show how much God loves us by going to the cross. And then because Jesus had done the hard part, he gathered his followers together and he said to them, go into all the world and have really successful careers and drive really nice cars and build really big houses and live really safe, respectable lives. It's a great verse, isn't it? When Jesus prayed to his father for his followers, this is what he said. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. This is what he said to his followers. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. It's absolutely critical to the mission of God that you and I go out into the world and develop significant relationships with unchurched people. In his last words before he left this earth, Jesus gathered his followers together and he said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I want you to take my power, my love, my aliveness, the message of my grace, the forgiveness of sins, the way of the cross. I want you to take it to the whole earth, and you'll change the world. I want you to be my witnesses, he said. You don't have to be my salesman. You don't have to put pressure on people. A witness just tells what they've seen. And I just want you to tell people about me. 
Tell people about what I've done in your life, and it'll change the world. It's a big job. I mean, talking about changing the world can be paralyzing. And so I want to make it real simple in this message. Let's say that you take on this mission that God gives just in one little sphere. Jesus says, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And the disciples were in Jerusalem when Jesus said that. And for them and for all of us, this means in your own little world, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace, just right where you live. He also talks about Judea and Samaria. I mean, these were places where uh, they were nearby, but the people were very different. They had different languages, different cultures, and so on. I only want you to think of one little sphere today, just your own little world. There are people in your little world who do not know Jesus. And God wants to love them, and God wants to reach them, and he wants to do that through you. If Jesus is going to change this world, it's going to be one life at a time. And it's going to be through you. But if you decide not to participate in this grand endeavor, if you get caught up in other pursuits, if you get distracted or discouraged, if you neglect being loving carriers of this message of hope, you know, there is no plan B. God is not going to assign angels to do it. Uh, He's not going to drop leaflets from heaven. He's not going to write it in the sky. You and I are plan A, and there is no plan B. If you take up this challenge, we can and we will change the world. But if you don't, we will watch the lights go out one little light at a time in this world. And we will watch a steady stream of people wind up in hell forever, just one life at a time. It's up to you and it's up to me. A friend was telling me about a neighbor of his who got taken to the hospital in an ambulance one evening and he had not been in very good shape. My friend drove his neighbor's wife to the hospital. And he was thinking to himself on the way to the hospital, you know, this would be a good wake-up call for Andy. Uh, maybe, you know, I could get him to the gym and we could start working out together. And maybe then we'll have some conversation about spiritual things. And he was sitting in the waiting room with Andy's wife when the doctor came out and said he didn't make it. He's 42 years old. Had two teenage daughters. And one day, he entered into eternity. Like, whatever you think that means, whatever you believe about that, on that day, he entered into eternity. This is what Jesus taught. You have to decide what you believe about it. But every person you know is destined for an eternity. They will die one day. They will face an eternity either with God or apart from God. We all face an eternity. And Jesus said, I want you to be my witnesses in your own little world. No one can take your place in doing that. No program can, no building can, no service can, no church can. And if you say yes to this mission, God's promise is that he will partner with you, he will lead you, he will prompt you, he will give you the words to say, he'll open the doors to the conversation, he'll open the door of that person's heart that he wants you to witness to. You just have to say a little prayer. And that little prayer is, God, use me. Something happens when someone says that prayer. God, would you use me? You know, I was thinking about this. I've heard people say a lot of prayers that have never come. You know, I've prayed for a certain house or I prayed for a certain relationship or I prayed for a certain job or whatever. But you know what I've never heard in my whole life? I've never heard a Christian say, I've prayed urgently, persistently, day after day, year after year for God to use me. 
as a witness to those in my little world, but it never happened. I think God will answer that prayer. I think he'll give you lots of opportunity to develop significant relationships with unchurched people if you just say that little prayer. God, would you use me in my little world? And I'll tell you a little secret. The people who pray that prayer, the God use me prayer, are the most joyful people you will ever know. And it's ironic because people think, you know, I don't have the time to witness to other people. I don't have the time to serve other people. I don't have the time to have spiritual conversations with other people. There's just too much going on in my life and it'll totally drain me. The reality is that most, the most joyful human beings on the planet are those whose lives are given to God to be used by him. Because if you're willing to pray that, God, use me prayer, knowing that it's a dangerous prayer, Jesus really will do it. He really will. And you'll go on an adventure with God and you'll experience a sense of being a part of an agenda that is bigger than how am I doing, how's my life, how's my comfort, how's my portfolio. I mean, just think what will happen in our little worlds and in the Tri-Valley if everyone at Blue Oaks were to say that. God, use me. I'm available. Use me. In the time that remains in this message, I want to talk about something that lies right at the heart of who we want to be as a church. As we strive to be used by God, we will become difference makers in our little world, in our little part of the world. And if you will pray, God, use me, that prayer, you're asking God to make you a difference maker in someone else's life. And that's been my prayer for each of you as I've been preparing for this series that you would become different makers, difference makers in the lives of the people that are in your little world. We all want to be difference makers, don't we? I mean, no one's picked on a team and wants to sit on the bench. No one gives a gift to someone and hopes that it never gets opened. No one devotes years of service to a company and then plans when they retire that no one will notice. No one dreams of dying and then having an unattended funeral. Like, no one hopes for a trivial obituary. Like, we want to make a difference, not just for ourselves. No one hopes that at his memorial service, someone will stand up and say, you know, he worked really hard and he was really successful. He did a good job of acquiring money and power. Uh, he was anxious, but he was driven. He was self-preoccupied, but he was polite. I mean, we want to leave this world a little changed. We want, uh, when time goes by, we want people to say, you know, my life is a little richer my world is a little bigger. My faith is stronger. I'm a better person because this human being walked the earth for a little while. She made a difference. He changed my life. I mean, we don't want to just be space takers. We don't want to be just resume builders. We want to be difference makers. And that desire to make a difference is not a bad thing. It's actually one of the most important things about you. You were made by God to want to count, to want to matter. And this gets messed up because of sin and ego sometimes, but we were created by God to make a difference. Did everyone get salt when you came in? I give you a packet of salt. Would you grab that and just kind of hold on to it for a minute? If you didn't get one, you can grab one on your way out. Um, if you're visiting, you might be wondering, is this some kind of Blue Oaks thing? Do they hand out a different condiment every week or what's going on here? And we all got this to help us remember what Jesus said one time uh, to a group of his students. He said, you are the salt of the earth. And to understand what Jesus meant by this, you have to understand what salt, how the, the, the role that salt played um, in Jesus' world. 
Um, it was much different than it is in our day today. Uh, does anyone know what the number one use of salt is in the United States today? Over 50% of salt is used to de-ice roads. Um, that was not true in Jesus' day. It was not true for Jesus. When Jesus came to earth, he did not come to a place where roads were covered with ice and snow uh, because he knew that it was not God's will for people to live in places like that. <laughs> I grew up in Chicago. That was for my family back in the Midwest. Um, over 50% of salt is used to de-ice roads. Uh, only 8% of all salt produced in America is used as table salt. Uh, in the ancient world, it was a completely different story. Uh, people discovered that there was something about salt that was a preservative. It kept decay from setting in. It kept corruption from setting in. In the ancient world, bodies, uh, dead bodies, were more often... Uh, you know, were common in, in that world, and decay was considered a horror. Um, there's actually a verse in Psalms that says, uh, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. And so people discovered that there's something about salt that arrests decay. Uh, it was almost like magic. They found that if they used salt, they could preserve food for a time of famine, and that it literally contributed to the outcome of life or death. They discovered that it was a, a purifying agent because it destroys bacteria. They discovered that it brings delight to people who are eating because there are special taste buds on your tongue that are designed to respond to salt. So salt became highly prized. Most of the ancient cities in Italy, including Rome, were founded on salt works. Romans used it to pay soldiers. Uh, the Latin word for salt is the word sal, um, and that's where we get the word salary. Um, because they used it to pay soldiers. Uh, that's where we get the expression, he's worth his salt. Uh, in Salt, the world history uh, book that was actually on the New York Times bestseller list, uh, Mark, Kurlansky, Mark Kurlansky writes, in the ancient world, salt was one of the most common factors that provoked and financed wars. People went to war over salt. In fact, that's why they say when one country is attacked, it was assaulted. Okay, I just made that up. That's not true. <laughs> you can't understand what Jesus is saying unless you understand that in the ancient world, salt was prized. Plato said that salt was dear to the gods. Homer said that it was a divine substance. It was prized. It was currency. Nations went to war over it. Empires were built on it. And Jesus, when he's talking to an undistinguished group of his followers... He says that God's plan to protect the world from decay and corruption, to purify it, to bring out whatever flavor and zest it's going to have, is you. You are the salt of the earth. That's what Jesus says. It's staggering news. It's good news. But that's hard for most of us to believe. We are the salt of the earth. But there are some sobering implications to this. One of them is salt does not exist for its own sake. When was the last time you went to someone's home for a meal and said, man, this is really good salt? Like, honey, we need to change salt. This salt is great. Like, salt doesn't call attention to itself. Growing up, I thought all salt was the same. Um, I just thought it was. And now that we live in California, I realized it's not. Um, there's gourmet salt. There's rock salt. There's sea salt. There's all kinds of special salts. Only here would people turn salt into kind of a status thing. Uh, but in Jesus' day, that wasn't true. Salt was just salt. It didn't call attention to itself. No one got hungry and said, man, I'd really like a bowl of salt. 
Salt's calling is to lose itself in something more glorious than itself, and that's when it fulfills its destiny. But if you're salt, you've got to get out of the packet. And if you do, one person who says that little prayer, God, would you use me, can change the world. There's a story in a book that Philip Yancey wrote that will just blow you away. Uh, Yancey writes about a man named Ernest Gordon. Uh, he was a British army officer captured by the Japanese in World War II. Uh, he was put in a labor camp that was forced to build a railroad uh, through the jungle in Thailand under unbelievable conditions. Uh, the prisoners had to work in 120 degree heat. Their bodies were stung in, uh, by insects and ravaged by disease. Uh, their feet were bare and uh, cut by stones. If a prisoner appeared to be slacking off, a guard would beat him to death or decapitate him in full view of, of the other prisoners. Otherwise, he would be worked until he was just too sick to go on. And then they would be placed into a shack called the death house where they would just lay uh, until they roast and died. And these conditions were so brutal that 80,000 men died trying to build this railroad. Uh, 393 corpses for every mile of track. This really happened. The prisoners who survived lived like animals. The strong would just beat the weak for a few grains of rice. The only thing that kept them alive was hate. It was a culture of death. Until one day, something happened with one man. A work detail had finished for the day when one of the guards shouted that a shovel was missing and demanded to know who had stolen it. And no one confessed, and so he screamed that everyone on the work crew was going to die. And he took his rifle, aimed it at the first guy in line, and was going to kill the whole work crew. And at that point, one of the enlisted men stepped forward and said, I did it. I stole it. And the guard started to kick and beat him while he just kept standing there at attention. One of them crashed the end of his rifle into his skull, and he collapsed, and they just kept beating his corpse. And that evening, when the tools were inventoried again, the work crew discovered they had made a mistake. Uh, no shovel was missing. No one had stolen anything. And that night, one of the prisoners remembered a verse from the Bible, greater love has no one than this, Jesus said, that a man laid down his life for his friends. And something happened in that camp. Prisoners started to treat the dying with respect, started giving them funerals, started uh, marking the graves with a cross. And people who were strong began to give their food to people who were weak. Ernest Gordon himself had been paralyzed with fever, and he had been laid out in the death house. Uh, he had written his final letter to his parents and was waiting to die. And then some men came in and they carried him out. Some prisoners gave him their food and massaged his legs and muscles and cleaned his terrine, uh, latrine. And he had not really thought about God for a long time, but then he did. And they formed a little church in that camp where people were dying by the thousands. They formed this little church and Ernest Gordon became kind of the unofficial pastor of it. And they planted a garden there to grow medicinal plants to help people who were sick. Uh, this is so incredible. They formed what they called the Jungle University. And they started teaching courses in history and philosophy and science in nine languages, including Latin, Greek, Russian, and Sanskrit. They created an alternative culture from the culture of death. Jesus had a name for that culture. It's called the Kingdom of God. And it crops up in the most unlikely places, the Kingdom of God. And they became so transformed that when the liberating armies finally arrived, instead of taking revenge on the guards, they treated the guards with kindness and mercy and respect and forgiveness. 
And Gordon's own life was turned upside down, and much to his surprise, he ended up becoming a pastor. And all of this started with one man, and it just started to spread. Never never underestimate the power of one person who was willing to make a difference with their one and only life. One difference maker can change the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are it. We're not here to hold services. We're not here to run programs. We're not here to meet in groups and feel safe and comfortable. Salt salt does not exist for its own sake. It doesn't exist for itself. We are here to permeate a dying world the way that salt permeates food. It's interesting that Jesus is not giving a command here. He doesn't say, try to be salty or like work really hard at becoming saltier. He's simply making an observation. You are the salt of the earth. And those words are so powerful that they're often framed and hung on walls. But Jesus goes on. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, why did Jesus have to go and say that? Like everything was going so well until he says that. We don't see those words framed and hung on walls. This is the kind of thing that makes people uncomfortable. You know, when Jesus says things like this, this is the kind of thing that makes people come up to a teacher afterwards and say, you know, give me some kind of like secret meaning behind the Greek so that this doesn't mean what I think it's supposed to mean. Here's what our culture will try to do to us. It will try to seduce us to serve it rather than God, making us useless. No longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by men. Our culture will try to seduce us into spending our one and only life and being too busy or too driven or too preoccupied or too whatever on our career, our money, our status, or whatever else. And I'll tell you what what my concern is. Our culture will try to seduce us into making the church just like a stress management tool. On the bottle of aspirin, there are the words fast, soothing, temporary relief from pain. Our culture will try to seduce you to bow down to it, and then if it can't keep you away from God or his community, to turn it into just fast, soothing, temporary relief from pain. But then you go out, and you're still enslaved to all the things that everyone else in this crazy culture uh, is enslaved to. And Jesus says, no, that's not the plan. You are the salt of the earth. I see people sometimes who go to church year after year, and they stay on the same crazy treadmill, overworked, overcommitted, overexhausted financially, still praying about all the same stuff they were praying about 10 years ago. And the real reason underneath, if, if they're honest about it, is they've never actually made a decision that they're going to die to this culture. So their prayer tends to be along these lines. God, would you relieve me of all the stress and pressure that I'm under, but let me keep chasing after all the stuff that everyone else is chasing after. I wonder if there's anyone in here today who needs to say, Jesus, I'm going to die to this culture because I want to be used by you. The good news is that when someone in God's community gets salty, it becomes contagious. When you become a difference maker, because Jesus really will work through you, other people look at you and they're reminded that they want their life to be a, uh, make a difference as well. That's what we all want. We do not come here just to put on services or run programs, although those can be very important things. You are the salt of the earth. You are it. 
God's plan to fight the decay and corruption of this sorry, dark world is you and me. And Jesus is looking for someone who will say, I will die to this culture. I will not live in slavery to its values and spend my lifetime and energy according to it and then use the church as an occasional temporary stress management pain reliever. I will live as the salt of the earth. I will allow you to flow through me. One of the amazing things to me is people who were opposed to the early church, uh, they thought they could stop it just by persecuting it. They sent the leaders to prison, and guess what happened? The prison started to get salty. They said, we'll stop the church by kicking everyone out of Jerusalem. You go back to the book of Acts, they, they believed that you know, getting, uh, kicking everyone out of Jerusalem would stop the spread of the gospel. Guess what happened? Like the whole region, first of which is Asia, Asia Minor, started to get salty. The idea that you could stop the early church by spreading Christians around, I mean, it was just like getting salt out of the salt shaker. You are the salt of the earth. All you have to do is just get out into the world. And it starts to permeate your home, your work, your neighborhood, someone else's neighborhood, your school, someone else's school. You are the salt of the earth. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter what title you have or whether or not you have one. You are the salt of the earth. Do you have any idea what Jesus could do with a church full of people who say, all right, God, my number one priority in my life, what I'm going to do between now and my last day is to be used by you. Like everything I've got, my time, my gifts, whatever they are, my money, whether it looks big or small, whatever I've got, it's yours. I want to get out of my little packet and I want to be salt of the earth. Do you have any idea? And so here's what we're going to do. Uh, my job and your job for the next week is to carry this little packet of salt around with us. So carry it in your pocket, carry it in your purse if you want to. Put it someplace where you're going to see it for the next several days. And when you do, just take a look at it for a moment and just say to yourself, all right, I am the salt of the earth. That's what Jesus said about you if you're one of his followers. With all of your flaws, with all of your fallenness, you're the salt of the earth. So carry this around and just remember what Jesus said about you. And then sometime this week, just would you break it open and pour it out? Use it. Uh, pour it on your French fries if you're a French fry kind of person. Pour it on your Brussels sprouts if you're a Brussels sprout kind of person. Uh, or whatever you feel like you need to do, pour it out. And when you do that, say a little prayer. God, would you use me? God, I'm pouring out my life to be used by you. All right, I want to close with this. This is what the Apostle Paul said. I hope this kind of stays with you this week. He said, let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. All right, let me pray. God, I pray that for each one of us today that we would go out into our little world and that we would let our words, our conversation, be seasoned with salt so that we can bring out the God flavors in our little world, so that we can make an impact for you. God, I pray that, would you use me this week? Interrupt my life with your agenda, because I want to be used by you. And God, I pray that some of us in this room would just sit down and we would think about that and how you could do that in our lives, and that we would pray that same little prayer. And God, I pray that you would use this church to make a big impact 
in the lives of those in our community who don't have a relationship with you and they're living far from you. God, use us to make an impact. Use us to be a light. Use us to be the salt of your earth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.